Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 13 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is David Levine, who is a principal at Groom Law Group and a well-known voice in the industry on fiduciary and retirement issues. He's co-chair of the firm's employer focus practice, and he advises plan sponsors, advisors, and other service providers on a wide range of employee benefits matters, from retirement and executive compensation to health and welfare plan matters as well. On today's episode, David and I discuss how the election results and control of Congress by the Democrats may impact the retirement industry and some of the key elements of the Neil Brady bill, also referred to as Secure Act 2.0, that was introduced in October to strong bipartisan support. We discuss MEPs and PEPs, the future showdown brewing between advisors and record keepers for the future of financial wellness, how ERISA litigation is evolving, and other interesting topics impacting the world of corporate retirement plans. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You Podcast with my guest, David Levine. David, welcome to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we have lots to talk about. We're going to hit on a number of different topics. We're going to talk about just politics and legislation and kind of the regulatory environment. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about PEPs and MEPs and some of the things happening in that space and and potentially even talk about just the litigation environment, which seems to be a constant discussion, nuisance, something to consider over time. So looking forward to dig into it. So why don't we just start with, you know, what's happening in the kind of legislative regulatory world with uh, Biden administration and then with Democrats controlling both the House and the Senate. What, what do you think that looks like for retirement policy within our, our country and how, how will that change from, you know, the past, call it four years, where we saw a big reversal of a lot of the things that the Obama administration had worked on. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that, because I think sometimes people view the Democrats and Republicans at extreme opposite ends of each other. Clearly, a Democratic administration will do something different than a Republican administration. Democratic control of Congress will be different than Republican. But the differences, I think, sometimes are overstated is where we begin. Because let's use the example of SECURE Act, the SECURE 1.0, the one that passed at the end of 2019. There, you had legislation that was promoted, sponsored, approved of, endorsed, however you want to put it, by Chairman Neal of the Ways and Means Committee and Ranking Member Brady. So you had a Democrat and a Republican. And the legislation had been advocated and supported by both. And when one was in the minority, one was in the majority and vice versa. Similarly, in the Senate, the support that you got on retirement bills very frequently, you know, taking out multi-employer pension plan funding relief, which is a whole other corner, which I'm not sure we'll get to today, there is a lot of agreement there. Similarly, if you look at the regulatory side of the House, yes, clearly the Trump administration differed from the Obama administration, and the Biden administration will differ from the Trump administration. But if you look at some of the rules that came out, they are maybe not as extreme as you might think on the left or the right. And in some ways, they're 
They do hew towards the middle, although there's debates over what the middle truly is. So I'm first to admit that some of the fiduciary rule and the fiduciary rule exemption that came out later in the Trump administration, there is clearly some views that think, oh, it's not so bad. There are some who think this is horrible. And so you never, you, you never get complete agreement on this. But I do think that as we look forward in the, into the next slightly less than four years, as we record this with the first Biden administration, will there be a second? Who knows? Well, too early to say that one. You have a Biden administration where the president has hit the ground running on his executive orders. President Obama did that. President Trump did that. President Biden did it. Biden has really been on a tear with his executive orders. He's done his first day executive order that basically says anything that's not effective yet, hold on. Whoa, anything that's not published, hold on, wait. It's standard practice to revisit. And there's all these academic thoughts, discussions as well. What can you pull back? When can't you? What? We could get into that if people really want, but you know, my personal theory is, look, they're going to try to pull back things at the end. Similarly, just a side note, Congress has the Congressional Review Act where they can sort of veto and override regulations, and they, the way you count the days to determine how much time is available for that is very technical. But the key takeaway is, is if you use the CRA, a common view is that if you use the CRA to remove a regulation, it kind of blocks the reissuance of anything in that area, potentially. So CRA can get used, and it got used for some of like the uh, state IRA programs and stuff like this back at the beginning of the Trump administration. But I wouldn't expect them to just do a wholesale, let's wipe out everything the Trump administration did that we can. That's Because you have to tread carefully, if you will, in terms of if you want to reissue something kind of in that space. Exactly. Because if you want to issue some guidance in the future, you may have just closed off that field by doing the Congressional Review Act. But, and there's other things that are happening. The executive order we sort of talked about sort of saying, revisit, look, revisit. On there, clearly the Trump administration ESG guidance or the pecuniary factors guidance is specifically named one of President Biden's executive orders saying, please relook at this. So that's clearly on, on the list and nobody's surprised about it. And there's some interesting pieces to it because parts of it are effective earlier, like now, parts of it are effective later. And a lot of people are saying, well, what do we do? And they're trying to sort of balance the two. We could talk about that a bit if you want. But there are some things they can change quickly. President Trump had issued an executive order that sort of talked about relying on sort on enforcement and sort of enforcement positions. And this came up a lot in our missing participant investigations that drive all of us batty. We get why the DOL is doing it, but you know they tend to go down the rabbit hole sometimes. But we understand the DOL's purpose, and it's a balancing act, and we can all debate and argue in good faith on that one. But they also have just recently also repealed sort of their regulation that was done at the DOL on and that said, hey, we need to formally promulgate guidance before we try to enforce a position sort of thing. They put in some, they're kind of like good governance type of things they had called it. Obviously, the Biden administration has a different view, but they've already pulled that regulation because it's not substantive, it's procedural. They can do that without all the formal process. But other regulations, if they're published and, and, they're, and they're final, you have to go through all the notice and comment. You have to go through all these processes under what's called the Administrative Procedures Act. So I think there's a, a lot to look forward to. You'll clearly see ESG back there or pecuniary factors, as the Trump administration called it. I think there is a lot of interest at different quarters to talk about things like fiduciary rule. You know, we've only had like six generations of the fiduciary right. rule. Right. And the SEC, and it's important to remember, it's not just DOL, the SEC, regulation best interest. You're now going to have a Democratic 
majority on, on the commission. So you might see some Reg BI discussions there. And that's a great example of a place where in Reg BI, they drew in rollovers into the, into the process in a way that I think not everybody who might have wanted a, I'll call it a assumed Republican position, would have said. Now, the industry has accepted a lot of it, and it hasn't been as much blowback, certainly, and more positive response than the 2016 Obama fiduciary rule from DOL. But you could see some reworking there, potentially. Similarly, you could see a bunch of reworking at the DOL and the ERISA side of the house. Plus, I would expect that they will look at other things. They might look at some of the state initiatives again. There's a bunch of different things that could be done at this point and interpretation. And one area that you mentioned at the top, PEPs, we can get into that some, but pooled employer plans and multiple employer plans, I expect to see a lot. The last thing I'll mention is I grew up as a computer programmer, so it's actually my true talent in life, not being a lawyer. And the focus on cybersecurity is going to continue. The DOL, I had an investigation that was, I think, one of the first that actually got the cybersecurity questions that they're asking. At this point, they're a lot, a little bit like the uh, early fee disclosure questions. It's a lot of information gathering. But you're going to get questions about cybersecurity. You're going to get questions about privacy. And there's some strong views there we can talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, I think when you talk about the litigation environment, and obviously fees have been the big focus, call it over the past, I'd say, 10 or 15 years. Interestingly enough, in 2020, you saw a real uptick in cases filed around fee litigation. I don't think that's going away personally anytime soon. If anything, I think it could could wind up accelerating. But I do think data privacy, especially, and also cybersecurity. We saw the Abbott Labs case, I think that was filed in, I believe in April 2020, where a participant had filed suit because I think she had $250,000 stolen from her account by a or allegedly stolen from her account by a hacker and there not being controls in place. I just read the other day, I think there was another lawsuit filed. Mm-hmm. And so that that seems to be a kind of the next frontier, if you will, litigation-wise, certainly the protection of assets and information, but then also, you know, how is the industry, this big push for data and personal data, how does the industry use that? I know we saw in the Vanderbilt case, uh, again, that was finalized a while mm-hmm. back, that there were some controls in place about limiting the use of data by providers unless specifically you know requested by participants. So I'd love to get into that a little bit. One of the points that that you made at the outset, which I think is a is a good one, is it seems like the idea of retirement sufficiency and strengthening the retirement system is not a you know a left or right issue. There seems to be very strong bipartisan support. There was for the Secure Act, I think for you know, Secure Act 2.0, which I think was put forth by Senators Neal and Brady in October. Again, the industry seemed to respond really favorably to Secure Act 2.0 and what that looks like. It seems where you start to get much stronger opinions is around enforcement priorities and, you know, the fiduciary rule and whatnot. So strong support for let's help people, you know, retire more successfully but how does that get implemented in terms of governance with the different industry players? That's where, you know, you get really, really impassioned perspectives. Can you just talk a little bit about Secure Act? There were a number of, or Secure Act 2.0, there were a number of, of things, everything from, you know, automatic enrollment to guidance around student or, you know, options around, I think, student debt repayment, RMDs, catch-up contributions. Can you talk a little bit about what Secure Act 2.0 entailed and, you know, what you think the the probability of success of, of that 
you know, proposed legislation would look like? Sure. Happy to do it. And I got in trouble for this back over like a five-year period when it was Risa than secure saying it'll pass soon. <laughs> so I've learned to be a little bit more careful about this because all the prognosticators, it's kind of like the talking heads on the Sunday news shows, if you've ever watched all that, where they predict. And if you look a year later, it's like none of it was right. Right. Uh, right. So the reality is, is there's a lot of support. You know, you have the two congressmen you noticed, Senators Portman and Cardin. And this is what makes it interesting. Senator Portman announced his retirement recently. Right. And he's been a re- – he and Senator Cardin have been like the dynamic duo of legislation for over 20 years in the benefits and pension side, especially in retirement. Have been viewed so, as strong advocates, you know, Portman, yes. right, for the for the industry and promoting retirement policy. So I think there's probably some trepidation going on in terms of in the industry, right? Is, is the industry losing an advocate? And I think we probably are. But there are other people behind, I think, who have a real interest. And I don't mean behind in terms of anything. I'm just sort of next in line to sort of who I think okay. will step up. And don't forget, Senators Portman and Cardin did their Retirement Security and Savings Act proposal in the second half of the Trump administration. And that and Secure 2.0 have a lot of crossover items in there. So I think that there is a real chance of it moving forward. I think if they're looking to show bipartisanship, this is probably the area that even during the, the highly charged years we've been in, has you've seen a lot of agreement on. So I think there's a real chance, whether it's called Secure 2.0, whether it's called RSSL, whether it gets a whole new moniker, I think it is. And to talk about the things that are in there, I'm Jewish, but I always refer to it as a Christmas tree bill. These bills are Christmas tree bills because it's like hanging ornaments off the tree. There are so many provisions. And you make a great point, Josh, that you know the industry seems to positively respond. It seems that by giving something to everybody, the industry positively responds, which is you know smart idea. And it's about savings. Our industry is one that it has, you know, a lot of common interests. There's maybe 90% where everybody agree. And then there's 10% where there's violent disagreement. I will not get in the battle between the insurance companies and the mutual fund companies about what their what the right decumulation product is. I'm staying out of that discussion. But at the same time, there's a 90% agreement type of there. So a couple of things that come to mind for me. First, Student loans, obviously, is a big one. Student loans got a lot, I think, was if you sort of did a heat map and maybe looked at Google Trends, you'd probably see that it got tons and tons of attention a couple of years ago when you had, it was like the Abbott Labs PLR on with a private letter ruling, which is only applicable to Abbott Labs, what everybody sort of looks at as a pattern. But the IRS will say it's not binding on anybody else. They talked about providing basically contributions for people who are on student loans. There's some technical issues on non-discrimination testing in there that we could get into. But the English explanation is it doesn't necessarily work for every plan. And if you have a safe harbor plan, there are some challenges in how you get it implemented there. So given that there has been a push, and obviously there are stakeholders who have interests clearly in this moving. There are stakeholders who just think it's a good idea. There are the, I don't think there's that many opposed, to be honest. And the student loan programs basically would allow you effectively to match on student loan contributions and not blow up your non-discrimination testing and everything. I think that is one, when legislation passes, it seems to me that's just easy include. I don't see anybody dropping that out. Similarly, the idea of, and it's in different pieces of legislation. So, but the idea of you've got the state mandates and the automatic enrollment things, and Chairman Neal has his separate bills on this as well about automatic enrollment and plans and sort of state run plans. And there's legislation out there that the trades have reacted relatively positively to that would sort of say, look, no more state state auto mandates. It's all going to be federalized, which I think is interesting because 
I think it's being carefully drafted not to make it like a pure mandate, like in the Affordable Care Act, but trying to encourage and try to get the coverage. People are watching the M word very carefully, I think, in this one. Another the M word as, as mandate. As mandate, yes. I actually because, think that personally, and I'm a have been a big, a very strong advocate for aggressive automatic enrollment and automatic features. You know, for 15 years, um, our clients have adopted it in a in a meaningful way. And so I was actually really, I get the whole the mandate and the big brother, but I, I think when you look at the evidence of what automatic features implemented correctly and appropriately, and, and maybe correctly is the different way, but but implemented in a kind of a best practices approach, it's hard to argue with the outcomes that, you know, these features have done to plans in terms of, you know, participation and, you know, to a lesser extent, maybe even deferral rates, really supercharged outcomes. I think when you factor in escalation up to a a meaningful cap of, you know, 12, 15%. So I was glad to see the support. It seems like the you know, the evidence strongly supports automatic enrollment. So I thought that was very interesting. And, you know, sometimes you get employers who are very, they're all in on it, but a lot of times they can tend to push back. And so I do like what you're talking about in terms of hopefully, wink, wink, nod, nod, but more instead of just, hey, this is a suggestion of more of like, hey, this is, mm-hmm. this is the right way to do it. So. Well, I agree with you. And I think there's a lot of benefit. It certainly gets more people. And I know there's a lot of talk about decumulation phase. And it's interesting. There's some, just to get wonky for one second, a great example, safe harbor plans. People love them because they reduce the testing, but safe harbor plans can also be challenging where there's a lot more flexibility and changing match during the year and all that stuff. I get that. I'm not arguing with that. But if you do automatic enrollment, I've seen a number of employers say, you know what, we're going to automatically enroll everyone. And because of just inertia, you can get your participation rates high enough that sometimes you don't even need the safe harbor because even if you test, if you have 90% in the plan, even with opt-outs of this type of solution, right. you oftentimes may not even, your testing oftentimes becomes pretty clean and therefore it may give you more flexibility outside the safe harbor. So it's something to think about, but right. that's an example of another value of automatic enrollment that comes to mind immediately. Yeah. There, there is a virtuous cycle, right? When you talk about that is you're getting people, more people in participation rates. It's very hard to argue. I mean, you can you can see whether it's a Vanguard or a Fidelity or a lot of the providers that do the research, right? That you know, automatic enrollment plans tend to have participation somewhere around ninety percent, and voluntary yep. enrollment plans have participation somewhere in the call it fifty-five to sixty percent range. And so, but there is a virtuous, there is kind of a aligned interest. I would say is as you, as an employer, as a plan sponsor, you implement those features for your people, right? They're getting in, they're participating, they're saving more. But as you said, as deferral rates go up you get more flexibility and cushion in terms of, you know, of testing, which can be kind of the bane of existence for, you know, for a lot of companies, especially smaller employers. There's one other issue I I have to mention on this. It's a term I've I've been using for years. I call it RAP, retire in place. Automatic enrollment helps address that. Like I try to be intellectually honest about this. We can all talk in an aspirational academic way. But there are some people who it is very much purely about dollars and cents. And I understand they're running a business. I don't judge that either. And I think even if you look at it from that perspective, automatic enrollment sometimes can actually be helpful because of RIP. Because if you have a workforce and your people don't retire, 
your health costs go up. You sure. cannot force old people out. I'll just have to say that for the record. The Age Discrimination and Employment Act <laughs> right. says you can't force old people out. But if you don't give people a glide path to be able to retire, they're going to stick around, which means the older you get, historically, the sicker you become. It's just not a slight on anybody, not everybody. And what happens is if, if you those people are there, your healthcare costs go up, your other costs go up, you have questions about promotion. So in my mind, there's so much talk about holistic wellness and everything like that in the universe right now. But even from a cold business perspective, if you want to call it cold, having it so that people can retire means you can have a next generation, which to me is a positive. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else just kind of secure act 2.0 that you think is, is noteworthy or relevant that, you know, listeners would, should at least put on their radar screen. There's two things, and this kind of crosses over between a number of pieces of legislation. There's two things that are out there that I think I would put out. Number one is 403B investments, being able to be in things like collective investment trusts, which is a lot of where the market has been going. And it, well, it was interesting. I describe it as a barbell. The smallest of the small and the largest of the large started at CITs and then it converged on the center. It's really interesting that that's how it worked. But I think you'll see the idea of 403B harmonization on investments is something you're seeing because right now there's only so far you can go inside of 403B. That's why I think the fee lawsuits on 403Bs miss. You got annuity contracts and you got and you got mutual funds. There's only so far you can go on these in terms of pricing. And I think I would tend to disagree with the plaintiffs on saying, well, you could go to here because you can't sometimes. Because the product isn't available, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing that's out there that is lurking in some of these bills, not all of them, is, is as follows. When Roth contributions came in in Ectra back in 2001, in Roth contributions in plans, you know, Roth IRAs came around a few years before that. The, the rule has always been Roth money can go plan to plan. But once it goes to an IRA, Roth money can't come back. The legislation includes language to pull Roth money back into, to allow you to pull money back. Some of it does pull Roth money back into a, a plan. So there's a lot of estate planning implications that gets to our estate planning colleagues out there, the ones who do wealth management, but it also, it leads to a different money flow because so right now, so often money flows out and never comes back. Right. Could it change some of the money flow? We'll see. Obviously we're in the boomer period right now where a lot of boomer dollars are flowing to IRAs out of plans. And in fact, a lot of projections, so sort of a flattening of assets in 401k for a little while until, until the millennials and the post-millennial generation start kicking in and then it's going to zoom back up again. But I do think that could also change some of the arc we're looking at here in this process. So those those are a number of things. I could keep going on and on, but those are some of the core ones. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think I had read recently that something like $2.4 trillion over the past five years has flowed out of you know, the DC world into, you know, IRAs and obviously IRA oversight rollovers that that's been a big, you know, over the past, call it five, six, seven years has been a big fight around kind of fiduciary rule. And, you know, on a couple of, of earlier podcasts, just in talking with folks, it seems like, especially in the larger market, you know, for so long, kind of think the, the, the mindset of many plan sponsors was, Hey, we're going to get people, they're going to retire give them their money and let them, you know, be on their merry way. And then we don't have to worry about it anymore. It seems like, especially in the larger market, and we'll, we'll see how this trend kind of plays out, but you know, more and more plan sponsors are thinking about, you know, what do we do? How do we amend our plans? How do we keep, how do we keep money inside the plan post-retirement? I think part of that's probably aided by guaranteed income and, and some product there and, and, 
you know, I think part of it's probably a pricing element, right? You have a lot of money flow out of your plan as a plan sponsor, you know, your pricing power goes down as well. And I think the last one probably is the feeling that where in many cases, not all, but, but in, and it's, it's changing as the move, the world, the wealth management world is moving. You're seeing a tremendous amount of asset flow over the past 10, 15, 20 years go from more of the, the broker deal, dealer model to the RIA model where there are fiduciary protections. But I think the overall feeling with a lot of plan sponsors is the teeth of ERISA fiduciary protections, you know, helps to ensure that if money stays in plan, that there, there are some protections that, that don't necessarily exist under the Advisors Act, if you will, or, or under FINRA or whatnot. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Biden administration look at more ways. And I don't know anything here. I'm just prognosticating. But I wouldn't be surprised to see the Biden administration look at other things, to your point, about how do you keep funds in the plan. There was a Wall Street Journal article like a year plus ago, maybe a year and a half now, on this exact topic of employers trying to keep more and more dollars in their plans. And I think that's definitely something that we will continue to see now and in future years. As, as a real discussion, obviously talking about the business side of our business for a moment, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a lot of roll-up aggregation work in the business in recent years. Some of it's economy of scale. Some of it is viewed as, as wealth management cross-selling. Some of it is viewed as just, you know, higher quality product due to complexity. I'm not going to say which one is every single transaction here, but I, I think that clearly when the DOL six, sorry, the DOL 2016 fiduciary rule went away, that sort of opened the door, I think, for people to say, oh, well, there's some more opportunities here. It'll be interesting to see what the Biden administration does. Yeah, there is no doubt that the next battleground, I have a whole conspiracy theory around this where, you know, over the past decade, what you've seen is whereas, you know, the reason why mutual fund companies, a lot of financial services companies wanted to have a, a distribution arm through a 401k plan was it was a great way to get distribution and flow into proprietary product. And what you've seen over the past 10 or 15 years is obviously the move towards passive investing and, you know, litigation. So the move away from things like revenue sharing and indirect compensation. And what you've just seen is you've seen a, a, a hammering of margins by these record keepers that used to be able to rely on, you know, essentially 401k record keeping was kind of a loss leader for, you know, these more higher margin products that's gone away. And, and it's had a, you know, it's had an unintended consequence, I think, you know, from the advisor world of service levels declining on the record keeping side and, and response rates. It's just, it, it's been a bit of a, it's been a bit of a challenge and it's actually stressed a lot of the good advisory firms and a lot of my friends and colleagues that sit on my side of the business. You know, we sit around and we talk about this. There's no doubt in my mind that especially the larger, you know, the record keepers, I mean, when you have an empower that paid a billion dollars for personal capital, the battle and the fight is on. The next battleground is how do we keep assets on book? How do we start to, you know, I'll be interested to see how the advisory industry and how the record keeping industry, you know, there, there's very much a frenemy thing going on at play right now. It'll be interesting to see how the convergence win, you know, the battle line for the participant, right? Kind of financial planning, financial wellness, if you want to call it that, financial advice to individuals has historically been in the realm of the advisor. There's no doubt that these large record keepers are building out the infrastructure to really want to go after and control that experience. Well, it's interesting you say that 
Yes, I love the word frenemy. Frenemy is a word I use to describe this industry. You know, another catchphrase I use is this industry is great at standing around in a circle and shooting at itself sometimes. <laughs> right. Be- I agree. It's it's because like you used the word best practice before. And I think a lot about this discussion. ERISA is a law that's designed to be flexible. And I know we all, it's easy to say best practice. And it's a nice way to sort of say, we really think this is a good idea. And I completely get it. But sometimes, you know, there are multiple ways to approach things and different businesses approach it from different angles. So I think keeping that in mind is a good thing. And your example, keeping that as mine, given that the, that the frenemy world and the competition, there's a couple sort of baseline things that immediately come to mind for me. First, I had someone in the industry once say to me, oh, record keeping costs should go to zero because it's it should go completely to zero. I think what you just described highlights the value proposition. I, I try to tell a very consistent message, regardless of whether I'm talking to you as an advisor or a consultant, talking to a record keeper, talking to a wellness provider, talking to a point sponsor, any of them. The simple reality is it takes money and resources to do any of these roles we just talked about. And a public market and negotiation of fees, great. Fees are not the be-all, end-all. There's many other things. Whether on investments, it's actually what's the performance. Whether whether it's on an advisor or consultant, what do you actually do? Because it's apples, oranges, and pears is the way I like to say it. For record keepers, do you want the high touch? Do you want an all automated version? Because those have different costs incumbents in them and different services. And also, so when you see people offering ancillary services and other types of activities, a lot of it's for good of participants, but also some of it is the economics of the industry, you got to find a way to pay for things. And sometimes people think everything should be free and it's not. There's value in almost what everybody does in this process. And I think sometimes it's easy just to say, oh yeah, well, that's just a commoditized product. Let's face it, everybody gets commoditized sometimes and none of us like it, but there is value in that. And I do think your comment about the tension between folks, I think historically people used to be more in specific lanes. You had record keepers here. You had managed accounts here. You might have even had wellness providers here. And, and sort of like in each different bucket, you had advisors in one area as well. And as the industry has gotten more competitive, you see everybody sort of tossing up into the, the same area. I kind of describe it as if you're taking a pizza pie, reslicing it and giving everybody a new piece, although everybody will wind up with a similar size piece when you're done, which is ironic. But the reason I say this is I think we are in a competition over the client, whoever you define the client is at this point. And if I consider it a nine inning baseball game, although extra innings are always a possibility, I've said for a while, I think we're in the third inning. Maybe we're in the fourth now. I think we probably have moved into the fourth inning of the game. We're in the middle of the game with all the consolidation. The natural history though is there will be consolidation, there will be competition, then a new stasis will evolve and then it'll start all over again. But you're absolutely right. I think Right now, we are the entire retirement space, and I think everybody's trying to find their place, and this is going to tie to our PEP discussion. Everybody's trying to find find out what role they play, where are they going to be, where do they want to be, and I think you're going to see overlap and tension. Like, it's very common. I think it's a natural part of business. It's just the reality. No, I, I completely agree, and I love what you're saying about, you're right, there is the blur, the blurring of the lanes. You know, I think the real challenge, and this is this is just a critique on the industry in general, is, and you mentioned, I, I very much appreciated, the retirement industry in general is, mm-hmm. it's all negotiated services, mm-hmm. right? And 
we've been hit with a lot of disclosure, which, you know, people think disclosure and transparency are the same thing and they're not the same thing. Ingredients to make a cake and a cake are not the same thing, right? Ingredients go into a cake, but just because you have really good ingredients doesn't mean you're going to come up with a really good cake. And I, I think yeah, I'm not a good, I'm not a good baker. I get it. Me neither. Me neither. Though my 14 year old son is actually, but one of the upshots of uh, the global pandemic is he totally got into cooking. He like cooks like two or three nights a week for us. It's fantastic. But I, I do think that it's funny, the industry, when everything is is negotiated and all the data is controlled, I, I agree, absolutely. You need your providers to run a profitable business. Because if you don't, if they don't, there's going to be either one or two things are going to happen. One, they're not going to be in business. And then you're going to have to go through and find new providers. And that's a lot of work and a lot of heavy lifting. Or the other one is they're not going to make money and then service levels are going to drop to zero. And, and to your point before, you know, maybe that's okay. And maybe technology helps a little bit of that. Maybe a plant sponsor, they have a pretty simple business and they don't need a lot of handholding. Maybe another one does. I think there's an opportunity within the industry. And I don't think the industry has done a very good job of the loser in all of this, quite frankly, is the plant sponsor because they don't, you know, plant sponsors still are not educated. I put part of the blame on them. And, and you know, I've been a big advocate for, I think, you know, plant sponsors need to wake up and realize, you know, behavior follows belief. If plan sponsors don't believe that the fiduciary implications they have as offering a plan and the impact that it can make on their employees, you know, future and their families and retirement, if they don't believe that is absolutely essential and important, then they're less likely to, you know, have actions or behavior that aligns with that. But on the flip side, and this is where the industry, I think we need to have a much better kind of, uh, we need to have honest conversations with clients around what does the cost look like and there needs to be a light kind of shined in that area because once you can start to have, you know, people think it's not fun to hold people accountable. It's uncomfortable. But what's worse than that is when you see people fail or not live up to expectations. And so, you know, accountability is not something you do to someone. It's something you do for someone. And I still think as an industry, you know, we service providers, like we fight these battles with one another, but we still haven't done a good job of having honest conversations with plan sponsors and especially, you know, larger market where you get more sophisticated service providers and clients, maybe it's a little bit different, but you know, there's still so much fat that's out there in the smaller end of the market. And let's talk just for a minute about fee litigation because in 2000, you know, through August of 2020, I believe there were 65 cases that were filed around primarily fee litigation, but also you're starting to see some things about data privacy and security and cyber. And we can talk about that as well, but. And by the way, it went over. I'm rambling. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm, no, 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 no. I was going to say it went over a hundred at the end of the year. It went over a hundred. Okay. That's like almost a tenfold increase, I think, over 2019. Well, part of it is, is you have some players who've really ramped up their role in this, you know, I'm not here. Some, to law, some, plaintiff, some plaintiff's firms that have taken kind of Schlichter's playbook and essentially co-opted that and now are really active in terms of filing cases. Well, yeah, well, and I, I you know, it's very interesting. I, I don't obviously represent any plaintiff's firms and Schlichter gets a lot of credit for being very visible, but there's been ERISA fee litigation before Schlichter. So it's important to recognize it didn't all start in 06. We've had litigation way before that, but the modern era really did start with them. And I will fully acknowledge that discussion at this point. But the reason why I, I start down that road out of the box is there are a number of firms that have increasingly been moving into the space. There's a bunch of, I'll call it the old guard, well-known plaintiff's firms. They would file, you know, several lawsuits a year. 
And the Schlichter firm would be known like that. But there are other firms that are out there as well that have emerged in this space. Some of them are veterans of some of the big firms that you know about before. And others are just newer players who've decided to move in. They're using the playbook but they're that, that others have built, but they're also building their own versions of it. I would sort of, if I bucket the cases, I bucket them into on the fee cases into a couple of things. Clearly, you've got proprietary fund cases over here. And there's one law firm that really spent a lot of time on those at this point. Separate and distinct from that, you have, I'll call it the new creative innovative cases. So the, whether it's the actuarial factor lawsuits or whether it's the security and data privacy type of lawsuits and the breach lawsuits. And it's important to keep in mind that security is not just cybersecurity. We taught you we referenced that. Because some of it's cyber if it's all electronic, but a lot of it is old school fraud. <laughs> and it's just that these are big buckets of money and people pay attention to them. But then, of course, I'll call it the more standard fee cases. And, I, and I'm careful, if you notice, I'm not going to mention specific names of many of these because we're involved in defending cases and everything from MEPS to single employer plans to fees to everything. So I, I try to step very carefully here. But there are the, the fee cases where they're commonly referred to as the cookie cutter cases on the defense side of the bar. And I got to admit, you have to show some respect for some of the design of some of these cases because people figure out how to do this in a sense, maybe more efficiently to our talk about an efficient business. At the same time, as a defense lawyer, I'm like, well, this doesn't really say anything is my response in some of these cases. And some of the courts have agreed, some haven't. But I think you see firms who have really you know, come up with their own methodology for how they do this at this point and bring a lot of these cases. I spend a lot of time doing so-called 104B requests. These are the requests that come into plans either from individuals or sometimes they're just by the plaintiff's firms themselves on behalf of an individual saying, give me A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. I was trying to see if I could do the alphabet Sesame Street style. You were close. You were close. Uh, so, where they come in and they, and they ask you for everything under the sun and there's rules under ERISA, what you have to provide. And they're asking for what we would normally think is a lot more than what they should be entitled to. And, and, you know, that's, it's, it's part of the back and forth, but, you know, and, and then so often they bring the suits because these suits, if you get them past motion to dismiss, it takes time. It takes resources for lawyers like me, but it also takes a lot of internal time and resources and that can lead to settlements. So those cases, I'm not sure there's anything really unique other than some of them are being dismissed because courts are saying they're not, there's no there there, but in some of the more cutting edge things, I'll leave off the actuarial factors right now, though it's an interesting suit. And, you know, I'm, an, I'm a big believer that a diverse type of investment type of thing. So we have all the lawsuits about alts and everything like that in plans. And really, they're using DB. I don't understand why you can't use them in DC, but there's all these discussions and I'm involved in some of those discussions and as with my colleagues. And similarly, in these, I'll call it the core fee cases, you've definitely seen the move towards, you know, use of data, privacy type of activities as well as you're seeing more attacks on, unfortunately, on managed accounts as well. And the data ties into wellness. So they're sort of attacking, I'll call it the ancillary services type of a thing in these lawsuits. And from my perspective, sometimes these lawsuits tend to try to oversimplify. They try to say everything is everything is an apple when it's back to that apples, oranges, and pears. And as it relates to data, there's a whole talk about data out there, both on the regulatory side, on congressional like I was involved in California with a colleague uh, with like Spark, for instance, on 
the use of employee data in a benefit plan because the rules were designed for like the Facebooks of the world, not for the, not for the benefit plan world. And we have a great carve out there that we were able got for, and, the, and this ties into CPRA, the new privacy law that passed. And California has some of the most stringent yes. privacy laws. But there's, but there's a lot of carve outs for benefits and that's stuff that I've worked on and it's good. But the lawsuits, I think it's important to point out that in the use of data, there's a couple of things that I think people sort of jump by. Is data a plan asset? Is it belong to, who owns it? The ERISA is not the clearest of written of statutes at, at times. And there's some things in ERISA that sort of talk about, well, the employer role, but not necessarily the employer's fiduciary. So there's questions as to who really owns this data and is it an asset of the plan? It becomes a weird discussion if you if you actually conclude data is a plan asset, because that means it's an infectious plan asset. Because unlike dollars, if I give you, Josh, $10, I don't have that $10 anymore. But if I give you a data file for 401kx, I still have a copy of it. And then you give it to you, and you give it to someone and they give it to someone. If it's a plan asset and it keeps going, is it just becoming an it's kind of, not to use an awful parallel, but is it like a virus that's spreading right. that's sort of that, that's going? So I think some people have jumped to saying, oh, it's a plan asset. I think there's a different debate to be had there on that, but I don't think it's an automatic. But there's the question of what about contractual negotiation? And that's what the plaintiffs bring up in some of these items. And that's some of the non-monetary judgment I think that we've seen. I mentioned, I think, the Vanderbilt case earlier, right? Where where yes, there are Vanderbilt. controls in place in terms of trying to to not eliminate but restrict, right? How that data can be utilized and by whom and for what. Is that fair? Yes. Well, and, and yes. And the reason I go for that is most of those settlements involve the university fee cases that have these restrictive provisions. We've had a couple more recently. Why is that relevant? It's because the case that's actually gone to trial and gone off on appeal, the Northwestern case, was a win for the defense on this issue. This is a provision that's showing up in settlements. It's not a win in court. And when it's fully not, adjudicated, it's not showing up. This is a this is a settlement. These are settlements exactly. Now, there's lots of views in, in this and this fight is still this is a first or second inning discussion here. But it's important to keep that in mind. And I know that people, you know, and you also have to keep in mind it's different plans. You know, for a jumbo plan, I know certain plans have different negotiations. And there's no one right or wrong. That's my best practice comment. But I do know that sometimes when you have a big negotiation, there's a lot of effort focused on this, but it's a constantly evolving world. So to say that there is a standard that someone sh- must do, I think is a bit of an overreach. Of course, I'm on the defense side, so take it for what it's worth. And I do believe in process and all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. But to say it always has to be done this way or it always must be this way, I think is probably step, it, it is for me a step too far. Well, and I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think this goes back to what we need is stronger fiduciaries on the plan sponsor side, in my opinion. We need them to be more knowledgeable, more highly informed, more savvy in terms of how they're representing their employees. And just being able to, it goes back to the disclosure. You know, the industry, quite frankly, I think wants to rely on disclosure because disclosure is data. And, you know, it's, it's, unless you're savvy, I don't know about you, but I think most people, like, disclosure makes everybody feel good about conflicts being out there, 
but mm-hmm. not many people read the fine print. Not many people kind mm-hmm. of understand that, you know, when you pull one thread on the sweater, like the whole thing can fall apart, right? Because there's these unintended mm-hmm. consequences or what's related to what. And I think that's a real challenge in terms of like, how do we get, you know, conflicts can be managed. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to be on a level playing field. You know, how do we continue to create a level playing field, not just for those of us in the industry, but also for plant sponsors? Because at the end of the day, they're making 98% of the decisions for their employees. We, we talk about participants. They have so little control over their benefits. It, it really comes down to how do we strengthen companies and put them in a position. So not only can they ask better questions and the right questions of folks like us, but they have a framework to be able to interpret those questions. I mean, I see it all. It's funny. I went through an RFP in 2020 and I got the RFP and there were some really good questions. And I was like, wow, this is like, this plan sponsor knows what they're talking about. And then getting into the finals and presenting, I, I realized that they had no idea how to interpret the questions. Like they had gotten good questions, but that was only 50% of them. They didn't even know how to kind of interpret what the answers to those questions look like. Well, to your point, it's interesting. I find the evolving landscape really fascinating. Like the term I've used for a long time, like when people are saying selling 338 services, and you've seen some lawsuits over this recently, is mind the minder. It's a very interesting discussion. As the lines blur between people playing different roles, a lot of this falls back on the plan fiduciaries to take a lot of responsibility. And it will still even in a PEP, because in the PEP world, there's a million different models. Some people say there's like three models. I would say maybe if you take it to like 60,000 feet, maybe there's three models. But as soon as you drop down in, in, in the altitude, there's so many different models. It is insane. It's, as a lawyer, it's fascinating. And from a business, it's interesting. But trying to understand the models. Sounds like a lot eight, of billable hours, David. Sounds like a lot of billable yeah, hours figuring all it, that out. It, it, there are there is billable hours, but it's just actually very interesting because you have to understand different business models. And I deserve that because any podcast would not be good without a lawyer joke. But what I was going to say is, for instance, as you see people moving to saying, hey, I'm offering this service X, you know, a lot of sponsors can handle it. But as these things are becoming more complex, there's sort of the question. I think that the contracts and what people do, to be clear, when people do the, that type of cross-selling, People are very careful and very precise about how they disclose. I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong, but sponsors sometimes, I've occasionally seen them hiring someone else to mind the people that they hired before. It's kind of this circular thing. You shouldn't have to endlessly do it, but there's a balancing act on this. Right. Well, let's talk, that's a good transition because the PEP world, right, that was really, I think, greenlighted by Secure Act, right? With, yes. With pooled employer plans, which I would, I guess, consider kind of a not that that's a new, you know, really kind of a variant of the multiple employer plan, which have been around forever, it feels like, mm-hmm. but with some kind of better features, if you will. You mm-hmm. know, one of those, I think, is it, it kind of acts the the one bad apple rule that used to, that exists with MEPs. But let's talk about the 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 PEP again, pooled employer plan landscape. And you know, there's there's we as an industry love our acronyms. So you've got the the different roles, right? You have the, what's called, I think, PPP, right? A pooled plan provider, which really is, I think, the sponsor of a PEP. And then you've got the service providers involved. So you hear some people saying that, like, this is the retirement gold rush and that everything is going, you know, in the direction of PEPs and MEPs and all the benefits around them. 
you have other people, I probably fall in this camp that see a place for it, but, but I'm probably more skeptical of, I see benefits, but I also, you know, those, those look, they're really good talking points at times, but when you get into kind of the real world, sometimes the things you think are going to be benefits don't necessarily play out that way. So what are you seeing in the kind of PEP world and, and how that's evolving? There's a ton of interest. What's going on as far as that goes? And then let's kind of, to your point, let's take it from the 60,000. Maybe you could describe those kind of three models at the 60,000. Maybe we can sure. close the aperture a little bit and, and sure. bring the plane down to maybe 30,000 feet and talk a little sure. bit more about some of the complexities. So I think when people look at a PEP, they think at 60, the high altitude U-2 flight version of this is number one is assuming it's a record keeper offering a PEP and bundling everything together. Number two is an investment management company sort of bundling everything together. Number three is, clearly, what have I missed? Advisors and consultants bundling all together. In the, the way you file and register these PEPs is what's called Form PR. It's like 5,500 filings. You file it with DOL. And if you look at the filings that have been done, there's like maybe 40 or 50 at this point that are out there. A lot of them are placeholders. It's a mix of all those people. So that's the 60,000. But then let's drop it down 30,000 feet into this discussion. I am going to take one exception to your comment. I think that the secure for PEPs created a clearer framework than like trying to do an open MEP without secure, agreed. But there are a bunch more requirements in secure. So I will tell you that I'm hearing people in some quarters saying, well, you know what? I'm going to do an old-fashioned affiliated MEP or an association retirement plan because each of them have different things. So I wouldn't say it just completely wipes the field, something to keep in mind. So so there's trade-offs, right? Some things are easier, but some things may be harder. Exactly. So that is number one. Number two, you get into the weeds of building this. So as you build this, Who's going to play what roles? And I think maybe looking at the form PR is a really good starting point because you have the pooled plan provider. They kind of take the role of the plan sponsor but in this process, but they're also a named fiduciary of the plan. So they have a fiduciary role as well. So it's kind of this hybrid role that in some ways we're all familiar with where sponsors were also running their plans. So it, that's kind of that's kind of the starting point on. You then say, okay, who is actually going to do the record keeping? And is the record keeper the same as the pool plan provider? Are they not? Whole nother discussion there. Who's going to be your record keeper? But remember record keeping, and I'm sure my friends in the TPA business and the 316 business can each have a different perspective on this. So I'm going to try and give a generic one. A record keeper can, if we were showing this on video, can do something from A to Z or could do something from A to D and D through Z is handled by someone else or a group of people, whether it's the plan sponsor or the name fiduciary, which here could be the PPP, or it could be given to a TPA, which handles a lot of the things with, and we all know they're different value propositions, or it could be like someone saying they're a 316. And as a lawyer, 316 is a very narrow legal term under ERISA, but it's a marketing term that, and that doesn't have a precise meaning. And there are some valuable services there, but if you look at the 316 offerings, each of them can vary a bit because there's no one rigid line and that's okay and good. But so you've got to figure out, okay, record keeper, do you have a TPA? Do you have a 316? Especially when you've got all these payroll feeds, some record keepers might say, I want someone else to handle all this for me. Right. Then you also have investments. Who's going to manage investments? Secure says the PPP can appoint a 338 
or it can fall back to the employer. But there's lots of different ways to work around this. And I don't mean in a bad way, in a good way, because what if the employer appoints the PPP's investment arm? You know, arguably that's fine to do. But the question is who appoints when and where? You can see, just as I'm drawing right now, if you were trying to draw this on a chart, the lines and dotted lines and boxes multiplies instantly all over the place. Then you have to think about contracts. Who contracts with whom? Who does what with whom? How does this tie to your plan documents? Because in plan documents, like pre-approved documents are great. And the IRS is giving us model language. But one of the challenges is pre-approved language, the IRS is going to focus on what are the secure internal revenue code requirements. There's still a million things. And I've, I've worked and talked to colleagues a lot about this. There's like an easy way where you sort of leave it vague. But then, of course, if you're trying to know who's on the hook if something goes wrong, you get into details. So it leads to some creative writing. And so I'm interested to see what the IRS does. But my gut says you're still going to have to wrap a bit of a, around that. But you put all these big pictures together, you get a lot of contracts, a lot of questions as to who hires whom, who approves what fees, how everything works. So it's kind of like my daughter is learning like factorial you know, calculations in school. It really is like nine times eight times seven times six times five. So your versions go from three to hundreds. Infinitely more complex, right? When you, when you. Yes. When you actually have to operationalize it. Right. And that's the interesting from my perspective is, you know, you mentioned this kind of role of mind the minder, like who's going to be able to figure all of that out. And, and some of those complexities, then if, what if you get a record keeper that has an affiliated from the investment piece, or you have an advisor that has affiliated and, you know, who a cop's never going to give themselves a speeding ticket, right? So who, well, who, but then the DOL's new exemption, just to add a piece to that, that came out, you know, obviously the Biden administration can revisit it. It has some language in there that makes it hard to use the exemption for capturing rollovers if you're already a fiduciary of the plan. Remember, secure requires a bunch of these people to be fiduciaries. Right, right. So there's all these different discussions here that go into this that become it's workable. And I've seen some really great designs out there, but it's complex and it involves a number of disciplines. That's why, yes, you, you joked about Bill Waters. Yes, it's a lot of work, but more importantly, about trying to get it right makes it extremely challenging in terms of the process. And when I say right, I mean, what works for the client, not legally right. So, because right now I think everybody's acting under the good faith standard. So it's hard for someone to say this is wrong, but as we get guidance, I hope the regulators keep that in mind because I think it's a challenging phase for them. And I know we have a group of clients we have a, that we represent that's sort of like we call them that PEP group that we talk to the regulators about this for that exact reason. Because it's trying to find something that's workable because MEPs and PEPs, clearly in the small market, there's talk, will they ever go large market? My prediction for, for the foreseeable future, I could see different size plans may wind up in PEPs, but I did not see it like eating the entire universe today. It's another arrow in the quiver at this point. The exact size of it, there are some who say they will fail. I'm not sure they will fail. There are some who say that within five years, all plans will be a, a PEP. I'm not sure I see that either. I'm misinterested on this. I see sort of a growing use of them. But if that was the case, you know, there's a great place for places like PEO maps. PEOs have been around for a long time. They have a decent chunk of the, of, of the market, but they're, they're not dominating the market. PEPs might be bigger, might be smaller. We'll have to see. You know, one of the things is that you mentioned is how these these really complex solutions are marketed and packaged. I think they're packaged up, and I think the way they're going to be sold 
to plant sponsors is, hey, you just, you give us the keys, you kind of walk away, you can kind of wipe your hands and everything's going to be done for you. Is that an accurate assessment from a, from a plant sponsor perspective? What are some of the ongoing obligations with PEPs in terms of fiduciary oversight? What about, you know, what about fees? What about, I mean, I, I realized like with a, a 338 and the delegation from that perspective, but there still needs, I mean, from a monitoring perspective, I, I would argue, I think if you look at ERISA, you can, you know, you can delegate and allocate responsibility, but you then still fall back. I mean, ultimately, if you're going to sponsor a plan, you know, you have to, to provide some type of, of oversight or selection or monitoring. Now, what that looks like, what does that look like from a plan sponsor perspective with PEPs? Um, uh, is it really just flip the keys and walk away and then you're good to go? Or is it is it is that well, a, a oversimplification? I think it might be a bit of an oversimplification because there still is the underlying decision of whether or not to be in a PEP and understanding what you're doing. And there's different schools of thought. Is that a settler decision or is that a fiduciary decision? You could argue it's settler, but I think I think that there's a bit of a there's a fiduciary sort of, it's a settler fiduciary blend, I think. And it's work, we're working out to see where it ends. Arguably, for instance, if the employer is selecting the investment provider, I think there's an argument that that is fiduciary, although I can make arguments on both sides. I'm being careful because I, different people listen to different things. I don't want things taken out of context. I think a lot of this is evolving at this point, but PEPs were designed very carefully so that employers still had a role. There was talk about removing employer responsibility entirely and that got pushed back hard during this process. I think the employers still have some type of role to the exact scope to be determined, but clearly you're picking something. And it really depends on the PEP. For instance, if you have a PEP where, like we're seeing springing up some people who are like creating new entities that have knowledge and experience, but they're not offering any other services. They just want to be a pool plan provider. They may sign off on every single agreement for themselves and Maybe the employer just monitors the overall type of process and how they're doing and whether it's right for their employees. And it can be very minimal. But as we know, each different model of agreement has different responsibilities. There could be other versions where employers do still approve, select different activities. And I've worked on these, but so I think it's important for an employer to understand what it's looking at. So I think the mind the minder, it's a challenge, like from a pure business standpoint, when you upsell 338 or just self, or you say, I will do 338, and upsell is not meant as a bad word there. It's just, you say, look, you don't want to do this. I'll take it. I'll do 338. And a plan fiduciary still has a monitoring responsibility when they hire a 338. doesn't mean you have to second guess everything that defeats the purpose of 338. But when you have these different models out there and understanding how it all fits together, I think it leads to some interesting questions as to, do you need the help? Can you do it yourself? Do you understand what your total fees and expenses are? I think it's going to evolve. I think right now we're in the early days because there's there's different schools of thought. There are PEPs that have been registered that have one, one company and its affiliates doing everything. And you have PEPs that are completely unbundled. It's kind of like a microcosm of, of the retirement market. industry the way it is right exactly. now. Exactly. It's a microcosm inside the PEP universe. And just understanding that is the key. But that's, but I think we're so early in this game that, you know. We're probably spring training still, right? Exactly. I'm not even sure the season started yet. Exactly. So, yeah. So, but so it's an interesting thing. But I definitely think there's the question of who monitors, who, who oversees, and who understands how all these different models work because they're all just very different. 
And they all can be really good. And I think that's important to say. They all can be really good. And there's no one that's right, but that's why coming down from 60,000 feet to even just 30,000 feet, you see how the complexity multiplies. Absolutely. hundred percent. Well, this has been an awesome discussion, David. And I think you know you are obviously highly respected within the industry and one of the most well-known ERISA attorneys that are, that's out there and seem to be in the mix of all the kind of cool stuff that's happening kind of in, in the industry. I'd, I'd wrap up with two, two questions for you. Sure. Um, the first one is, where do you see the industry going over the next five to 10 years? You know, for, for listeners, for those of us in the industry, for plant sponsors that may be listening, but where do you see this industry evolving over the next five to 10 years? And what do you think we should be aware of kind of on the horizon that, you know, maybe, maybe it's uh, not right in front of us right now, but, but we want to make sure that we're paying attention to. Sure. I, I think the industry evolution, I, I think we're coming to an inflection point in two ways. One, I think MEPS and PEPS, because if PEPS go the way of big dominance, it's going to be a discussion of what is everybody's role in that future ecosystem going to be. I can tell you working a lot in that space right now on all just different pieces, people are still figuring it out. But if PEPS go, I think there's some people who are sort of trying to do their staking, planting their flag. I do this, I do this. And others are leaving it open. We're going to have to see where that goes if PEPS go big. Uh, similarly, I do think we're going to have to see where regulation goes. I think, and this is not just litigation, but this is regulation theory here. For instance, if we have eight years of democratic control, let's say, theoretically, it's very possible that we could see, maybe not the old fiduciary rule, but a return to some of what they would consider stronger sort of enforcement, more restrictive from some people's perspective. Stronger, protect, stronger protective protections yeah. for participants. Right. They would take what people would consider to be a more aggressive position on consumer protection. <laughs> and that also goes to privacy as well. So if we have democratic control of everything, you could see legislation on privacy, you could see enforcement, you could see this, which really I think might, you know, wind the clock back a little bit potentially because it's, it's kind of like you, we go through the cycles in American business of conglomeration, divestment, conglomeration, divestment. I think there's a chance you could see some of that depending where a if it's a Democratic control of everything. But to Republican control, you know, this is all stereotyping because I don't think it's as black and white. Maybe it wouldn't be what you, you might see the current trends of consolidation continuing. With divided government, I think you're going to see to sound like an 80s or 90s song with Paul Abdul, two steps forward, one step back. Where you're gonna... It's the first Paul Abdul reference, I think, on the Fiduciary You podcast. There you go. Hey, she's a good choreographer too. But I think that's what you're going to see because you'll see efforts to sort of control what people consider to be conflicts. And again, consider, because there's different views on what is a conflict, what is not, how do you, as you said before, how can you manage conflicts? And so I think there's a lot... But you could see sort of the push-pull in different areas, which could also, in my mind, mean that we're going to live in a judicial court-driven outcome, if that makes any sense. I'm a little wary of that because court-driven outcomes, there are some great decisions, and sometimes you get decisions that you may not really like in there, and sometimes they can be inconsistent from place to place. So how do you do this? So as I look forward, I think adaptability, if I have one word, is going to need to continue to be things. This industry hasn't been static. You know, the days of getting, you know, several hundred bips as a fee for starting up a new plan, probably not really around at this point. I do think that people are going to have to figure out what are their roles. I think of this as a lawyer every day. 
and as an advisor and a consultant, I, I would think about because there are people saying I'm keeping the pure play model. There are people saying I'm doing the integrated holistic model. I'm not going to say which one's right, but I think saying, where are you going? Not just looking at, well, what do I have to do today? But where do I think I fit as the ecosystem evolves? That to me is the biggest thing. Now that's great. That's great perspective. What would be, you know, this, the, the purpose of this podcast is to make ERISA fiduciary smarter. What would be your single best piece of advice for someone who's an ERISA fiduciary? What would you tell them to, if, if they could only kind of focus on one, one thing, what would that be? All right, I'm going to cheat. I'm a lawyer. I'm going to say two. <laughs> Number one, fees are not everything. That's my starting point. I just have to make that point. Fees are but one element of a process. It is not everything. But if I had to pick one thing on an affirmative basis to follow, follow on, it's mind the words versus documents. I know that sounds really weird. Like in a world we live in today, everybody sells in a TikTok type of way and like, you know, you know, in something in two minutes that tells you why they should use their product. As we come to a world where, especially with all the unbundling that we have now, it's good to understand, focus on understanding who owns what and where their responsibility ends. Because doing that allows you to have a more holistic picture of your entire retirement or benefits program, health too, benefit programs and all. So you understand the players and understand who has said what they're going to do, not just in marketing, but in their, doc, in their agreements. Because that allows you to figure out, okay, what do I own? And what is someone else taking care of? And where are the challenges? And that's maybe not the most refined focus on fees. But in some ways, I think if you understand that, that can keep you from finding yourself in a quagmire later where someone says, that wasn't me, that wasn't me. And you find out it was you, the plan sponsor on the hook. Right, right. No, I think that's a great, I, I think that's that's probably one of the best answers that uh, I ask this question at the end of every podcast. I think that's one of the best answers that I've heard so far. And, and obviously it's becoming more complex. I go back to that, that comment you made earlier about mind the minder. Who is, who, is, uh, who is in the best position to be able to do that? Mm-hmm. So where can people stay connected with you or catch up with you? What's the best way for people who are listeners that want to sure. follow you? Sure. Well, I've gone through phases in my career of doing LinkedIn. So I'm all, so, you know, David Levine, you can find me under Groove Logger, David Levine on LinkedIn. David Levine is the John Smith of Jewish names. So if you search for Groove Law Group and David Levine, you'll find it. I used to post a lot more. I don't post that much anymore. It's just other focuses. Love Twitter. Just don't post much. Uh, but at the same time, Realistically, email or calling me. I'm, I'm, I, I, I carry more technological devices when I used to travel, unlike now, than I can ever list. But I'm easy to reach. Email, text, phone call. You know, dlevine at groom.com. Pretty straightforward. It's. Uh, but thank you for having me. Absolutely, I, I've had a great time and, and always love your insights and just really appreciate. I think you you are. You know, I don't love the term thought leader. I think that's a totally. I, I think right behind financial wellness, thought leader might be my. Uh, my, the most overused terms that that's out there. But, you know, I do think one of the things I've always very much appreciated about you is I, I feel like you bring a very intellectual honesty to a lot of these issues and you, you're very good at being able to, to kind of parse some of the complexity and, you know, simplify the complex. So I've had a great time, very much appreciate it. And, you know, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode with David Levine. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, 
articles, and free tools. I've also recently launched the Fiduciary You community exclusively for retirement plan advisors. I'm totally pumped about this, really excited about what it could be. If you're a retirement plan advisor and you want to connect with like-minded professionals so that you can share ideas and best practices and get advice from your peers and give advice to your peers and just overall elevate your game, go to fiduciaryyou.com. Click on the community button in the upper right-hand corner of the site and fill out the application form. There's no cost to join. It's not a coaching or a consulting service, but it is invite only. Also, if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. And finally, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. So until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.